Well, I'm going to miss you guys. Uh, some of you who were here in the beginning know that when I came here, I was a, about a lowly single man. And uh, that's obviously theologically not correct, but um, I leave with a wonderful wife and a wonderful daughter, and with many blessings from you all in how you have encouraged and challenged me, as well as uh, my wife and daughter as well. And so before I go further, I want to say thank you uh, to all of you guys uh, for, for supporting uh, the ministry here, and perhaps more importantly, being dedicated uh, to the preaching and teaching of God's Word and trying to live that out. Um, this morning's message is in the book of Philemon. Uh, recently, I met with a young man who hopes to be an engineer. And we spoke about the ways that engineers use the principles of math and science. And they do that to do what? They create bridges, they create power grids and computer software and other important matters in life. I wonder if you've ever thought that a great engineer never really graduates from the basics of math and science that are learned in elementary school and in high school and in college. And so for the three teens that are here and not on the retreat, take your studies seriously. You never know when you'll need to use it. Uh, because you see, when creating something, uh, an engineer is always beholden to the laws of physics. You never graduate from that. And yet, at the same time, a great engineer doesn't just memorize the basic principles of math and science. Oh, he or she takes those principles and knowledge and applies it to solve real-world challenges. And in many ways, that's the same when we consider the Christian life. What do we do in the Christian life? We take fundamental truths, truths like what we're hearing about in the book of Romans and Pastor Brett's sermon series, and what do we do? We, we apply it to real-life matters. And real life, in many ways, is the ministry that this church called me to over seven years ago now, when you called me to serve as your pastor of discipleship and counseling. And in our time together, I hope that we've worked as a church to take the very important truths found in Scripture and hold it side by side with how we navigate some of life's biggest challenges. Uh, challenges like difficult marriages, uh, difficult parenting issues, uh, grief and loss, or painful pasts, or sins that seem to be really hard to repent of. So in my last sermon as a pastor to you then, I want to take you to a book in the Bible uh, that asks recipients to act on biblical truth and not merely read it or know about it. And that's Paul's letter to Philemon. Now, this letter to Philemon will in many ways seem like the opposite of the book that, again, we're going through in our main sermon series in Romans. Unlike Romans, it's short. It's only 25 verses. It's also not very hard to understand that you'll see as I read snippets of it as we go through. Uh, we're not going to also see in this letter to Philemon doctrine explicitly taught like we do in Romans. It's understood that the author, Paul, and its recipients and its readers uh, already understand that. It's assumed, and now they're being asked to apply it. Now, Romans and Philemon, in many ways, complement each other well, though. If Romans 1 through 11 provide the elementary school building blocks of the Christian life, well, then books like Proverbs and the Psalms, and in this case here, Philemon, well, they take such foundations, and they show us how it looks like in real life just like an engineer takes the principles of math and science and addresses real-life challenges. 
Now, before I get to our main points today, I'm going to give you a very brief overview of this letter to Philemon. Uh, Philemon has 25 verses, as I mentioned. Verses 1 through 3 are fairly standard greetings that Paul offers in his letters. I'm going to come back to verse 1 later in the message to highlight some significance we see there. Verses 4 through 7, there Paul aims to encourage Philemon. Uh, He aims to Uh, set the stage, as it were, for a very big ask that he's going to be uh, doing later on in the message. And in verses 8 through 22, well, there he covers really the main point of why he's writing this book. He wants to persuade his friend Philemon to forgive somebody and to be reconciled to him. And then in verses 23 to 25, he closes out the book uh, with some personal touches and letting his friend Philemon know who's with him And he gives a fairly standard but no less important blessing. Uh, There are three major players in this book that are highlighted. There are many names, but there are three that stand out. And each of those three has a major question to answer. First, we, of course, have Paul. He's the author of the book. And he writes the book in the late 50s or the early 60s. To give you some bearings, 2 Timothy, towards the end of his life, is written probably five to six years later. Now, we see in verses 1 and 23 that he's got several companions with him. And for reasons that we're going to see soon enough, several times he states that he's in prison. Now, Paul, as I mentioned, has a critical question to answer. He's an apostle. He has authority over people in the church. How will he use that authority? For anyone in any kind of leadership position, be it in the home, the workplace, or here at church, you know that good leadership is difficult. It's graduate-level work in many ways. Next, we have Philemon. Philemon came to faith through Paul's ministry. He hosts the Colossian church in his home, and he appears to be a wealthy businessman and well-off. As we're going to see in more detail, he and Paul have a mutually edifying relationship. They're like-minded for spreading the gospel and maturing in Christ. Now, while the letter has several recipients, uh, we see that in verse 1 or or 2, that that, that it's written to Philemon, as well as to two others who are likely his wife and and, uh, son. It's also written to the Colossian church. While it's true that there are many recipients, uh, the bulk of the letter, uh, beginning in verses 4 through 25, is actually written in a second-person pronoun. uh, It's singular. A second person pronoun singular. In other words, while there are many recipients, when he gets to the actual heart of the letter of what he wants the recipient to do with it, it's actually written just to Philemon. Uh, he's the one who bears the responsibility for putting this into practice. Now, like Paul, Philemon has a critical question that he's got to answer. Philemon believes in the doctrine of grace and reconciliation. He believes in the gospel. And he's going to be asked in this letter, will you actually apply that doctrine? Will you forgive and be reconciled to someone who has wronged you? Now, if you've ever been hurt by others, you know that the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation can be like graduate-level work. It's not easy. And lastly, we have Onesimus. Onesimus' name means useful. He's Philemon's slave and likely stole something from Philemon, and he ran away. I'm going to come back to this notion of slavery later. Obviously, here in America, we hear that term and it can be uh, quite difficult to hear. But for now, I want us to know that during the time that he ran away, Philemon actually became a Christian through Paul's ministry. And Paul has found that Onesimus lives up to his namesake. He's been very useful to his ministry. 
So much so that when you see Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, uh, Onesimus is actually, along with Tychius, uh, one who brings that book, that letter, to the Colossian church. He's entrusted with such important words. Onesimus, indirectly in many ways, because he's not directly addressed here, but indirectly, we also need to see if he answers a critical question. Has he been genuinely repentant? Has he changed his ways so that Paul can give him a full endorsement to Philemon to be reconciled to him? Now, whether you're new to Christianity or you've been a Christian for decades, I hope that in this very short and personal letter that you'll be encouraged to see how all the major players here are pushed to practice the doctrines that they claim to believe. But before we go further, let's go to the Lord and prepare our hearts to hear this message. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we can gather together to hear from your word. Uh, Even something like last week where the snow canceled our services, we are reminded not to take for granted that here we're able to come, uh, typically each week, to hear your gospel and your word lifted high. I pray that the words spoken today would come from you and that we'd all be encouraged to not be merely listeners, but doers of what we hear today and encourage each other with what we hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the good news is there's only four slides for today, and one of them is up there. Uh, The bad news is it's still a full-length sermon, but I'm going to get you guys out before the Lions game. Uh, What time does the Lions game start? Three o'clock. Okay, so if you live half an hour, 2.30 we'll be done. Okay. Now, now other guys like John MacArthur and Alistair Begg, if you look at their sermons in Philemon, uh, they've taken two or three weeks sometimes to do this. You get this in one today. Okay. You get one message here today. You come back for the PM. You get some more implications of this as well. And I've got two main points uh, for today's message, and it's certainly a lot of sub-points, but, but two main points uh, for today's message. Uh, point number one is to be spiritually useful to others. Be spiritually useful to others. I'm going to present to you two different scenarios here. And as I'm, as I'm going through these scenarios, I want you to think of which one you fall into, or maybe which one you'd like to be in, in. Person A has been coming to Trinity Baptist for years. This individual claims to believe the gospel, uh, but he or she leaves right after the service and isn't really involved. Uh, people might recognize this person's face, but, but not really be able to tell you much else about him or her. Very little is known, and again, this person's been coming for years. Uh, Person B has also been coming to Trinity Baptist for years. Uh, When he or she came, they were an infant in Christ, uh, still many sins struggling with, uh, but but now matured in those areas. And and over many years, it's been a putting off of those old ways and on the new self of who we are in Christ, still struggling, of course, but trying. And this person plays a vital part in the life of this congregation. This person serves to encourage others in the church and serves in practical ways. You could say that the church wouldn't be the same without this individual. Again, in my seven years, I can think of so many of you who would go in this category here. But which one of them describes you? Which one of them describes perhaps where you'd hope to be? I want to impress upon you what a tragedy would be to be in that first category. Uh, to live in an area where there's a gospel-preaching church, and there's other churches here like that in this area too, to, but to live in an area where there's a gospel-preaching church and not be part of that ministry or that life, uh, that's tragic. It's not what we were designed for and made for. And I hope that in our seven years together that we've grown as a church to push away from that first option and on to that second. 
Listen in as I read verses 4 through 7 as we hear about this man Philemon and how many ways he, he's, he exemplifies what we heard in that second option there. Verses 4 through 7 here of Philemon. I always thank my God as I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. The greatest good that you can do for others is to be spiritually useful to them. Let's take a deeper dive to see how Philemon was useful to others. We see it summarized very well there in verse 7. 7 tells us that Philemon refreshed the hearts of the saints. Your love has given me great joy, Paul writes, and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Now, refresh means to bring life to. Uh, Imagine that you're going around on a 90-degree day, and you get a cold cup of water. That's going to give you some life to keep going. And so refreshment means to enable someone to keep going, to help thrive. Now imagine how important this refreshing of the saints was to the early church. You had Paul going around setting up churches, setting up, uh, equipping leaders, but he needed people to stay in these churches. He needed people to be spiritually useful to others and not useless. And so right away we see there, there's a refreshment that he offers. You ever notice there's some people here at church that you see them? And they're just a great encouragement to you. Uh, Perhaps it's words that they say, uh, things that they do. And others, we're not going to name names, of course, but there's there's sort of a drag. It's it's draining to be with them. We want to be a refreshment to others. Equip each other to be a refreshment. Now, the other word that Paul uses here, of course, is hearts. Hearts tells us that this refreshment wasn't just some superficial refreshment. We can, after all, watch a good game on TV or watch a funny movie, and there's some refreshment there. But that's not the core of who we are, is it? I'm not saying it's wrong to watch sports or or movies or, or, or talk about vacations, but that's not the core of our Christian life. And so I wonder, what's the default aim of your conversations? Maybe before church, after church, throughout the week. What's your aim? What is your sort of default and bias? Do you aim to have your conversations be as easy as possible? Just sort of, let's get this over with. And let's just talk about the easy things. Uh, maybe you're someone that, uh, that kind of likes to just kind of make jokes. Uh, not take anything seriously. Not have a sober-minded view of life and just want to be known as the funny guy. There's a place for all of that. Easy conversations can be a springboard into deeper ones. But at a certain point, we need to get past the dessert, don't we? And we need to get to the meat and potatoes. Our default needs to be to refresh the hearts of the saints as Philemon does here. And many of you, as I mentioned earlier, have refreshed my heart. I think of numerous conversations in my office, uh, in the conference room downstairs, throughout, throughout Grand Rapids, here in the auditorium, that were refreshing. And Tracy and I were talking to you today, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could steal some of you and take, us, uh, take you guys to Providence? Uh, that would be wonderful. Uh, because you guys, so many of you here, will be useful quite frankly, in a place of great need. Uh, you've been useful to us. Uh, some of you are familiar with the podcast ministry that we started a few years ago. What was our aim there? Our aim there was to be a refreshment and encouragement to the hearts of the saints here. An encouragement to say that as we've talked about numerous life issues on that podcast, 
Hey, it's actually possible to put into practice what we believe, to have faith amid the ups and downs in life. And I've gotten a front row seat as I've talked to so many of you as a host of that ministry, of listening to so many of the men and women here talk about God's work in your life and available to all the church to listen to, uh, to say that, hey, we can refresh and encourage each other. Here are wonderful testimonies uh, of that. Many of you have participated in the work of not only encouraging us pastors, but also the support of workers all across the globe that we support. Uh, Some of you in my time here visited Faith and Deeds in South Asia to be an encouragement to people there. Some of you have gone to see the McMasters in Brazil to be an encouragement, to come alongside, to, to fellowship with. And Lord willing, in the next few months, it's my hope that the church will support two new areas of work, church plants in Ann Arbor as well as in Utah, and not just financially, but through going there with adult trips, short-term trips, pastoral visits, to encourage and build up the life of the ministry and the important work in Ann Arbor and in Utah. And so whether here in Grand Rapids, whether globally, whether nationally, so many of you are doing this work to be useful to others. So if you've been here for more than a few months, do a quick, quick check on yourself. Ask yourself, who here in this church could say that they've been spiritually encouraged by you? Who could say that you've been of service to them? Now, I'm not talking about extended family or friends who don't come here, although that's certainly important work. I'm talking about people here at Trinity Baptist, where if you're a member, you have covenanted together and committed to say, these are the people I want to do good to. Some of you may be a little discouraged and think, I can't think of anybody. Well, then let me encourage you to start this week. In your quiet times, think about who you can encourage with what you've read. Text somebody, let them know that, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would be doing well in the Lord. Open up the directory and invite some people over, as so many of you do. Join a men's or women's or or co-ed group. Study God's Word with other people here. Talk to Pastor Dave or Pastor Jory or, or Mike Guest about how you can serve in some of the children's and youth ministries here. I could go on and on and on. Start now. And so our first point for today is to be spiritually useful to others as Philemon has done here in refreshing the hearts of saints. But Paul has got other matters to discuss. And so after this introduction, this quick introduction that really serves to encourage Philemon, he now is going to get to the heart of why he's writing this letter. Again, he wants Philemon to take back Onesimus. How will he go about that? Well, that brings us to our second point for today. Our second point for today is to persuade others. Persuade others, don't demand. Whether we know it or not, we're influencing other people. Sometimes we're intentionally trying to influence others, sometimes not intentionally. But either way, have you noticed that you are shaped by who you're surrounding yourself with, for better or for worse? Now, getting others to do something they already want to do isn't that hard. I wonder if you've noticed in our Sunday school classes that we offer in the hour before the service, We've never had a class on, we're equipping you how to increase your intake of junk food. You don't have to do that. You know, here's how you do it. Here are 10 steps. We never had a class on, here's how you increase your wasting of time on your phone. There's no need for that. We kind of already want to do that, unfortunately. Instead, we've had classes on what? Corrales, a few years ago, taught a class on how to steward your phone intake. 
Uh, we've had classes again on how to steward our grief and loss or difficult relationships or painful past. Uh, Dave has taught some classes on missions and evangelism. Once again, things that maybe to our shame are not things we naturally want to do. We need to persuade others to do that. And so how do you do that? Again, it's much harder to convince someone to do something they might not be inclined to do. Well, we've got a few options, don't we? Option one is if you have any authority over this person, oh, you just tell them what to do. Option two, you could just bully others into submission. Some of you have heard the, uh, the story of a man that I met with several years back. Uh, I was in Virginia at that time. And I was meeting with this man and his wife, and uh, sometime in the session, he got up and he threw his notebook across the room. Now, this man is about, uh, was over six feet tall, probably 300 pounds or so, uh, with a beard. Very intimidating, very scary. And so I gave him a few minutes there as he walked out of the room, and, and I pursued him, and I said, what, what were you hoping to accomplish uh, by doing that? And to his credit, he kind of calmed down and sounded kind of remorseful. And he says, look, I know that was wrong, uh, but that's kind of what I do in the home. And I said, well, tell me more. He says, well, when I do things like that, when I just kind of bully others, I get what I want. My wife and kids listen to me. It's effective. It works. A third option, persuade others, don't demand. That's what Paul does in verses 8 through 22 of Philemon. Paul aims to persuade Philemon to forgive, just as God forgives. Now you could say, well, this is God's command. Why do you have to persuade somebody? It's in his word. This persuasion, though, isn't about Paul getting his own way here. Again, this is for God's glory. It's God's command. But it's also for Philemon's good. He wants his friend to apply what he believes. So this isn't some sort of selfish persuasion where you learn these tactics of persuasion of how to get others to do what you want them to do. This is for the Lord's glory and for Philemon's good. And we're going to look at five different ways that Paul aims to persuade Philemon. Five different ways that he aims to persuade Philemon. The first that we see him do uh, is through humility. Uh, the first tactic, the first card he plays to persuade is through humility. Humility in many ways seems like such an upside-down aspect of living if you live here in America. We tend to be very proud. A few years ago, Tracy and I visited Steve and Sue Mayo in Australia. Uh, the Mayos, uh, if you know, are supportive workers of this church, and they've been in Australia for over 20 years. And in Australia, as some of you guys know, uh, things are kind of upside down to what you would expect. Uh, they are right now, I think, in 80-degree weather. Does that sound pretty good? Right, 80 degrees. Now, now, when you're in Australia, to turn on the light, you actually turn it down. Now, I was very confused when we were out there. I kept going up, and it turned things off. And to lock a door, you actually turn the, uh, the little knob thing uh, vertically. Of course, here, it should be horizontal. But that's not all. I discovered in Australia, there's something even more strange compared to what we know in America. You see, in America, it's not hard to convince women to get together their fellowship and talk, is it? You see, the women's conference always outdoes the men's conference, uh, much to, to my shame here. Katie, how many women came last time? Was it about 300? <clears throat> well over 100, right? Well over 100. The men were averaging around 60. Now, to be fair, there were more women in the church, so there's a little bit of that. But, but this, this next one coming up, we, we need to pick it up there, guys. You know, trying to get guys together is like herding cattle. But again, in Australia, I discovered something strange. Steve, who's been there again over 20 years, he would know. He said, actually, here in Australia... It's the men that love to get together for fellowship, and it's harder to get the women together. Seems very opposite to what we understand here in America, doesn't it? Stereotypically so. 
And sometimes in life, things are upside down from what you'd expect. Have you noticed that trying to be a Christian in today's culture is like upside down living? It's opposite. Especially here in America, we may think that to get someone to do something, we just use our position. We just bully others and tell them what to do. That's really what that first and second option were and what that guy was telling you guys about was. But Paul does the opposite in this letter. He gives up actually his position as an apostle. Take a look there at verse 1 that I mentioned we'd come back to earlier. He identifies himself here as he writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. A prisoner of Christ. That's interesting. In other letters, he identifies himself as an apostle, like he does in Romans. And then in verses 9, 10, and 13, he continues that idea. He says, I'm a prisoner, Philemon. I'm in chains. Remember where I am. Now, you may be saying, well, what is he doing here? What he's trying to do is say, Philemon, this appeal for you to forgive this man. I am not coming to you from a position of authority over you. I'm appealing to you from a position of meekness. Not through my authority. And he furthers that idea in verse 8. Where he says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. What is he doing there? Once again, he is giving up something. That word bold there can be very easy to miss. What it signifies is that Paul has certain freedoms of speech here. He could have certain confidences to be bold here, to say what he wants here because of who he is as an apostle. He had certain rights here. It would be in his purview, in other words, his jurisdiction, to be able to simply tell Philemon, go do this. But he chooses not to do that. Again, think of how opposite that is to what society has become, where everyone's just fighting for their rights and freedom of speech. Paul believes, though, that Christ gave up his divine rights. He believes that Christ didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather made himself into what? A servant. Something similar to a prisoner. And now Paul acts on that belief. Doesn't just recite it, doesn't just teach it. As an aside, I'll tell you that as a pastor, one of the most important things a pastor does is teaches. But one of the easiest things a pastor will ever do is teach. That's not that hard. Paul acts on that belief. That's much harder, isn't it? By emulating Christ, by giving up his rights as an apostle. But that's not the only way he shows his humility here. Take a look at the first half of verse 14. The first half of verse 14 where he writes... But I do not want to do anything without your consent, Philemon. I don't want to do anything without your consent, Philemon. You see the contrast there between verse 14, that first half, and verse 8, and verse 1 as well. In Paul, in verse 8, Paul willingly gives up who he could be as an apostle. He gives up his position. In verse 14, he respects Philemon's position. I don't want to do anything without your consent. Parents, if, you're, if you have an older adult child, you know how important it is if you want a good relationship to not do anything without their consent. I've had way too many conversations with uh, parents of adult children uh, who've shown maturity, uh, who think that they can still tell their kids what to do. And you see the impact there. And so he says, I don't want to do anything without your consent. What he's doing there, he's saying, hey, I recognize you are in a position of authority over Onesimus. So the one who has authority over Philemon 
That's Paul, willingly cedes that authority and recognizes the authority of somebody below him. Once again, how often do you see that these days? That's the opposite of what you see. Usually it's the other way around. Usually it's my wants, my needs, don't tell me about yours. And you wonder how well is that going to work if you're trying to persuade someone to do something they might not want to do. What difference would it make in your relationships if you aimed to consider others' interests? If you aimed to persuade? That's one tangible way we can apply the gospel. Again, it's what Christ did for us. Captured so well when Paul writes Philippians 2 there of giving up his divine rights and becoming a servant. And so we see that one way Paul aims to persuade his friend here is through humility. And next we see that Paul leans into his relationship, his relationship with Philemon. Have you ever had someone at church who hardly knows you and just comes up and tells you how you should live your life? Okay. And maybe if you're single, they come up and say that, well, you should date so-and-so and such-and-such. And you're thinking you don't even know who these people are. And they're telling you who you should marry. Uh, and maybe they'd say that, well, I think you're doing some sin. And they don't even know who you are. The best wisdom, have you ever noticed, is offered through people who take the time to actually get to know you. And that's what we see Paul does here. He's aiming to persuade Philemon on the basis of the relationship that they've established over time. Once again, we read earlier in 4 through 7, hey, I'm praying for you. I know who you are. I'm so encouraged by you. And we see verses 9 through 10 further cement this. He says here, I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. You say, what does that have to do with relationship? That word appeal that you heard twice, once in verse 9, once in verse 10, the Greek for that, the term is parakaleo. Parakaleo. Now what does that mean? That means to admonish or to exhort from beside. To admonish or exhort from beside. Not from afar, but close to, next to. And not from some generic platitudes that it could have just been uttered out to hundreds of people, but through pinpointed wisdom that comes from knowing somebody. Put it another way, this persuasion that Paul's trying to do, this appeal here, is based on a close relationship. It's a way for him to say, I know who you are. I've invested in you. I'm not a stranger to you. I'm not making this plea from some ivory tower and giving you generic platitudes. A few years ago, the elders read a book about serving as elders. We were trying to grow in how we can do that even more faithfully. And one of the key points I've always uh, remembered is, it was to say, to smell like sheep, elders. Smell like the sheep. And in other words, be among the sheep. Uh, be among the sheep. Know the sheep well. Don't just sit in some ivory tower and give out edicts, but be among the sheep. That's really what this parakaleo captures. The more you know someone, have you noticed, the more you can tap into their values. The more you know what's going to motivate this person. And Paul knows what his friend's about. Philemon's a good man. He wants to apply the gospel. And again in verse 9 he writes, Well, I appeal to you on the basis of love. This is where I'm appealing to you from, from love. If you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know what that Greek word means. It'll be encouraging. It's agapeo. It's agape love. He's saying, this love that I want you to motivate you by, it's this kind of unselfishness. This, this desire to be benevolent and do good to others, it's motivated by your beliefs. In this particular case, belief in a gospel of grace. And so he's saying, 
I want you to be motivated by that kind of love, and that's who you are. Uh, Compare that to say, hey, I appeal to you on the basis of selfishness. I appeal to you on the basis of appearance. Have you ever struggled with maybe doing the right thing here in church just because you were afraid of what people would think about you? That's not what he's saying here. He's saying do this out of benevolence for this man Onesimus. And we see this idea continue there in verses 19 to 21. He writes, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. He's indicating, of course, hey, you came to faith under my ministry here. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart uh, in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. What is he saying there? He's saying, I know who you are again. You're a guy who loves to encourage other people, as he's established earlier in the letter, in the introduction. You love doing that. You love refreshing others. Do the same for me. Do the same. As I have done that for you, do the same uh, for, for me. Because he knows that this is going to be hard. Have you ever noticed that there's some people where it's pretty easy to reflect Christ in that relationship? And then there's other people, maybe they've hurt you, or they just get under your skin. And suddenly it's just a, it seems like a bad matchup. And it's really hard to apply what you believe there. What Paul's saying there in verses 19 to 21 of continuing to do that, of refreshing him by taking it back Onesimus, he's saying, be the same guy that you are with Onesimus as you are with so many other people. As again we saw in verse 7, that you're known to refresh the hearts of the saints. The call to reflect Christ, after all, it doesn't change just because it's hard to do, does it? We need to be the same people with people that are hard to love as we are with those that we maybe don't even need to rely on the gospel to love. You can wonder who, who gets more glory when you actually try to interact with someone who's actually impacted you. Now, before we move on to the, the third way that Paul aims to persuade Philemon, I want to uh, touch on that idea of parakaleo again, that this idea of coming alongside others, of encouraging from beside, and that's not just for the touchy-feely or relational people. Uh, sometimes when we talk about discipleship and, and mentoring others, it's just, oh, some people have that personality to do that. And there may be some truth to that. But rather, I want to encourage us that we do believe in a holy God who became man and who entered into our world uh, to experience what we experience, uh, the blood, the sweat, the tears, and the pain. And so if you believe that, and you can't believe the gospel without that, then you can reflect Christ by drawing close to people and entering into their world. Listen, understand. Then you'll know what particular doctrine and what scripture could be of help. You can do that parakaleo that we talked about. And so thus far we've seen Paul try to go about this through humility, as well as through leaning into that relationship he has and what he knows about Philemon. But next, he actually recognizes the importance of his own example. He recognizes the importance of his own willingness to do the right thing. And so here we see that uh, our third point here of how he's trying to persuade us through his own example. Uh, through example. Uh, there's a common saying that if you're in leadership, you shouldn't do something you don't want others to do as well, or that you wouldn't uh, uh, otherwise do yourself. Uh, Paul knows that he's asking Philemon to do something, again, difficult. After all, relationships, have you noticed, require some risk. They require some cost. Uh, quite obviously, sometimes, of course, it's hard because someone has impacted us in a negative way. They've hurt us. Other times, it's the opposite. A relationship is painful because actually somebody uh, is moving 
or somebody dies and you have to say goodbye to that person. And many of you have done that over the years here. You know, one is getting, uh, you know, someone that you don't want, maybe. Taking back someone you'd rather not be around. Another is losing who, who you'd like to stick around. And so Paul, in verses 12 to 13, is showing that he's actually willing to be an example here by giving up someone that he'd like to stay with him. Uh, he writes there in verses 12 to 13, I am sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart. I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains uh, for the gospel. What is he saying there? He's saying, hey, it's costly for me to give up Onesimus. And I know, Philemon, it would be costly for you to take him back. So as two mature believers, let's both do the right thing here. Let's both be willing to pay the price here to do what's correct so that we can be this beautiful aroma of the gospel lived out to a watching world. But that's not all. There's another way that this theme of forgiveness and being an example there is shown. Take a look briefly at verse 24 there. Verse 24 gives us some encouragement there. There are a lot of names mentioned there. But the first one there that we see in verse 24 is a man by the name of Mark. Now, if you know your Bibles well, there's something fascinating about Mark being there. Mark is with Paul. There with Paul in his time of need. The same Mark that 10 years earlier in Acts 15 wasn't of any use to Paul. Paul sent him away. There was conflict even with Mark and Barnabas. But now what has happened? Ten years later, both men have matured. When not only a relationship was stored, but what are they doing now? They're now contending for the gospel together in a fallen world. It's almost as though he's saying, hey, you've probably heard this story, Philemon, of what's happened with me and Mark. He's here with me. He's here with me. Go and do the same with Onesimus. Be a testimony to a watching world. So whether with others here at church uh, or in the workplace or home, if you're in any leadership capacity, I wonder if you're willing to uh, do what you're asking others to do and how much stronger your position would be if those under you know that you're at least trying to do what you're encouraging them to do. And so to recap, what have we seen so far? Instead of just telling Philemon, take back Onesimus, He's come at this through humility. He's leaned into their relationship. And he's tried to even serve as an example here of doing the hard thing. But Paul doesn't stop there. He brings in perhaps the biggest card that he can play to try to persuade. He brings in some doctrine. Some doctrine here. In my uh, seven years here, there's been a lot to appreciate about this church. I've mentioned some of that already earlier. Uh, There's certainly different ages and stages of life. There's been different interests and personalities. Uh, As we saw even just a few years ago, yes, there are different political perspectives as well on how to address societal challenges. But amid all that difference and diversity there, one of the things I've appreciated about this church is that there's something that typically has risen above all of that, all the personalities and interests and political views. And the thing that's risen above God's word, as you might guess, uh, the, the thing that's risen above all of that is God's word. This is a church that's devoted to asking, what does this book say? And how does that impact what we should be doing here? And so to add some extra heft to the argument here, Paul decides to bring in a few doctrinal matters to persuade Philemon. Now again, unlike Romans and other books in the Bible, this isn't going to be something that's explicit here. Again, these are two mature believers. 
He knows that he, he, Paul knows, Philemon knows this stuff. He brings in this doctrine of reconciliation. That is to say, Philemon, I know that you believe that sinners are reconciled to a holy God. If you believe that, will you be willing to do the same? Now, in reconciliation, you need a few things, though, right? There's usually an offended party. In this case, it's Philemon. There's an offending party. In this case, that's uh, Onesimus. And then you also need a mediator. In this case, Paul. Now, for reconciliation to take place, what do you need? Well, the offended party, their rightful anger and sense of injustice, that has to be satisfied. It's got to be addressed. But the offending party also has to make some restitution by showing that, yeah, there's been some actual change here. Verses 10 through 11 tells us whether the offending party here in this case has actually done his part in reconciliation. Here we read, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Paul here is mediating on behalf of Onesimus. And he's saying, this man has repented. He's not the same useless guy anymore that you once knew. I can vouch for him. Onesimus has done his part to right this wrong. And because he's repented, he's actually become very useful to Paul's ministry. Now, I don't think Paul would have vouched for him if he wasn't generally repentant. Because let's be clear on something here. If Onesimus wasn't generally repentant, then what would happen? Well, advocating for reconciliation when the guilty party hasn't actually changed, that, that actually harms the offended party, doesn't it? But not only that, if genuine repentance hasn't happened, that actually harms the guilty party too. It's letting them off the hook. It's, it's taking away a huge impetus for the offending party to actually change. But apparently, he has changed. And so Paul wants Philemon to see Onesimus for what he is now, not what he once was. Have you ever tried to do that with somebody that's hurt you? Isn't it so hard to see them for who they once were a year ago, 10 years ago, instead of seeing them for who they're trying to become? That's very hard. And I recognize it's not always so clear-cut like it is here in this letter. Sometimes with somebody, it's one step forward and one step back. And so tonight, then, we're going to consider... How do you tease out whether someone's genuinely been repentant? How do you know that? And how do you think through factors of forgiveness and reconciliation? Again, that's going to be tonight. But for now, we want to see that Paul is asking Philemon, apply some doctrine here. If you believe that God has forgiven you, do the same thing. You might say, well, that should be enough. But Paul keeps going. Look at verses 17 through 18. Here he says, if you consider me a partner, Philemon, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, well, charge it to me then. Philemon, welcome this man who's wronged you as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong, charge that to my account. That should sound familiar. In many ways, Paul models what Christ does for us on the cross here. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for our sins against God so that we can be in relationship with God the Father. Again, Paul's not explicit here, is he, in teaching any doctrine there. Again, that's what he does in Romans. He just wants Philemon, who he knows, already knows these truths, he wants him to do it. And since Onesimus has repented, 
that reconciliation can take place. Now, on this matter of doctrine, though, there's another piece that we need to reflect on here. Paul recognizes that there's going to be some practical realities if Philemon actually falls through here. How are they going to relate to each other? Onesimus, again, is his slave. Now that Onesimus believes the gospel and he's repented, what is that going to look like? Much has been made about Philemon and and this notion of slavery. I mentioned we come back to that a little bit later. Um, One of the things I want to mention is that slavery in the time of Paul's uh, time, it wasn't the same as we think of in the American South in the 1800s. The slaves in Paul's time had a lot more rights and generally were treated a lot better. I'm sure there were some bad owners here and there. But for the most part, this situation is much different uh, than when you think of things that happened here in our country in the 1800s. The other is that some are taking this book of Philemon to mean that somehow Paul maybe had no problems with slavery. After all, we don't see him condemning anything here about this, this idea of slavery. But we've got to remember, what is Paul doing here? He's writing this letter not to share his viewpoints on this topic of slavery. He, he's writing this letter so that two people can become reconciled. His concern is that Philemon lives out what he believes of this doctrine of grace. And so then how will these two relate to each other? Here Paul uses the doctrine of identity and purpose and value to offer Philemon a lens in which how are you to view this man? That is to say, as image bearers of God, we believe, hey, we have inherent value. Value that's not based on our position in society, but rather on the idea that we reflect something of God's nature and character. A value and purpose not based on particular income level, but rather on making disciples and helping others to spread the gospel. Now, both Paul and Philemon believe that. But what does that even mean? Well, let's take a look at verses 15 to 16. Here he writes, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. He wants Philemon to see here, before the Lord, you and Onesimus are equals. In the world's eyes, you aren't. But we are to view people through God's lenses, not through the world's lenses. And he says, you two are equally brothers in the Lord. You two are equally sinners in need of grace. You two are equally sinners who have received that grace. You two equally were useless at one point for the kingdom of God. And you two equally are now useful. You notice the humanity in which Paul writes about Onesimus, a slave. He says he's a dear brother and valuable to us. He's not a piece of property. He says that he's a man, a human being. He's a brother in the Lord. He's not doing this because he's on some social policy crusade. It's because, again, he wants Philemon to view Onesimus through a particular lens, the lens in which God views people. Notice, though, having said that, that he's undermining potential abuses of slavery and mistreatment. He's saying, treat this man as a human being. Treat him as an equal before the Lord. And so what do we see here then as we move forward? He's come at his friend with humility, with relationship, with example, with doctrine. Again, maybe that should be enough. But he's got, just in case, one last card that he wants to play, and that's authority. Authority. The other day I was at the supermarket, and I wanted to buy some cereal. 
And now some of you have heard ad nauseum that I'm trying to watch what I eat, and so I'm cutting down on the sugar. It's very hard, of course, to do that. But I wanted to buy some cereal, and so I noticed that there was a box of shredded wheat. And on the box it said it just had a touch of sugar. Not too much. I think it was 5 grams of added sugar, not the 40 grams of nonsense that you get with Fruit Loops and uh, Honey Smacks and these other things like that. It just said just, just a touch. Just enough to be noticeable, in other words. Not overpowering. Not the main thing. And we see in verse 22, Paul applies just a touch of authority here to persuade Philemon. He says here, one thing more, Philemon. Prepare a guest room for me. Because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Now most of Paul's letters, if you've never noticed, are written to churches and he's writing a lot of commands. But in this letter, he only writes one command. And it's just here in verse 22. Just a little bit of authority there again. As an aside, there are other times that we see Paul use a lot of authority. You can think of maybe in Galatians, where he does a lot of that. So this isn't to say that there's never a need to go beyond just a touch of authority. This book, after all, is not intended to be some treatise on leadership, that this is how you should always go about these things. Different circumstances call in different tactics. And so in this case, he knows just a touch of authority will be enough because he knows who Philemon is. And so in 22, he's saying, just in case you're tempted not to follow through, I'm going to come and see you. I want to make sure that you do this. Trust but verify, for those of you who have heard that term before. And so there it is. Persuasion rather than demands. Now in concluding here, I want us to briefly, briefly compare this letter to a single verse. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it. And that single verse is Colossians 3.13. The same author, Paul, writes to the same audience, Philemon and the Colossian church. And he actually gives the same message. Here's Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And you might be thinking here, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul, you just spent 25 verses to talk about forgiveness when you could have just used one verse as you do in Colossians? We could have been home a lot earlier. But wouldn't it be so nice if when we're ministering to others, all we had to do was open the Bible and read a single verse and there's no more struggles? Is that how it works? Is that how it works with you? You open the Bible and you read a verse and everything's taken care of? Persuading, exhorting, And encouraging others to obey God's word often requires a lot of elbow grease, doesn't it? A lot more than just one verse. This interpersonal ministry, this parakaleo, takes a lot longer than we'd often like to admit. Again, we can just think of ourselves. Requires a lot of thoughtfulness, just as we saw here. And so in this letter to Philemon, what is Paul doing? Well, he's not just presenting this this command to forgive and reconcile. He's not commanding that true statement on some cold, hard platter. You ever have someone do that to you? Just kind of blurt out God's command to you? What he's trying to do is take the time to help his friends see and taste that obeying God's ways, well, that's a good thing. And my hope is that in our seven years together, we've all grown in how to do just that. I started our message with that engineering illustration. And I'm going to conclude with a little bit of a different illustration here. 
if Romans 1 through 11 provides these scales and cords to the Christian life, well, Philemon then takes those scales and cords and it makes them beautiful. We see in Philemon leadership and authority, not in some abusive or in some passive manner, but rather in a caring and biblical and humble manner. We see the doctrine of reconciliation, uh, not just written about, as important as that is, but encouraged and exemplified. We see a life change from stealing and being useless to being useful, to being a key part in spreading the gospel. When Christians apply doctrine, we serve as a fragrant aroma, not only to each other, but to a watching world. And so whether here in Grand Rapids or as far away as Providence or Asia or Brazil or Australia, the highest of high in our relationships is what? What happens when we reflect Christ together and spread the gospel? And in these last seven years, Trinity Baptist, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being a spiritual refreshment to me and my family, for helping me to grow in ways I wouldn't have otherwise. And thank you for the opportunity to make some beautiful music together. Let's pray. Dear great God, we thank you that you have given us your word in a language we can understand. We thank you that we can gather together to hear it, to encourage each other with it. We thank you for such grace when at times we don't put it into practice. We thank you for the brothers and sisters in our life who model application, forgiveness, reconciliation, biblical leadership, and repentance. Help us to continue to do that, whether here or across the globe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. We'll see you tonight. You're dismissed.